So just for a few seconds about the logistics for this evening. Tonight, for some of you who've been regular members of the audience, and I want to invite you all to keep on coming back. I think I saw many of you sign up for um, audaciousideas.org, and that's where we'll be sure to send you email announcements of events just like this one and others that we have, and you're, and you're very welcome to come to all of them. So tonight, our process is going to be that we will her first hear a presentation from Professor Goff, and that will be followed by a presentation by Lieutenant Governor, uh, Lieutenant, hello, hello, no, no, Lieutenant, <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Russell. And after Lieutenant Colonel speaks, Joe Jones, who's the CEO of the Center for Urban Families and also a member of the Open Society Baltimore Board, will moderate a discussion. Now, we're going to also be passing out cards for questions, so we'll have about 20 minutes at the end for questions from the audience, and we ask that you jot down your question uh, just before the, the Q&A session begins, and we'll collect them and we'll give them to Joe, our, um, our, our great moder moderator. So before we begin, let me tell you a little bit about our speakers tonight. I actually heard Professor Goff, Philip Goff, um, at a conference at the Ford Foundation, and I knew it was really important to try to get him here to Baltimore. And I'm happy to say that uh, Commissioner Batts agrees. We're on the same page that it's going to be very important and very helpful to all of us here in this city to have Professor Goff working with us. Uh, Professor Goff is the Executive Director of Research for the Consortium for Police Leadership and Equity. He's also an Assistant Professor of Social Psychology at the University of California uh, in Los Angeles. His research examines racial discrimination and the intersections of race and gender. Dr. Goff's research has been recognized by the National Institute of Mental Health, the Ford Foundation, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Woodrow Wilson Foundation, Mellon Foundation, and MacArthur Foundation, among many others. Most recently, Dr. Goff has been recognized as the leader in psychological research on race, gender, and policing. His research is the first to link psychological factors to an officer's use of force, uh, the history of use of force, creating the first empirical model for predicting police disparities in stops and racial disparities in police use of force. Um, he got his doctorate at Stanford and his um, bachelor's at, at Harvard. Uh, now, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Melvin Russell joined the police uh, department back in 1979 after graduating from the Baltimore Police Academy as the first and to date the only African-American class valedictorian. He first worked uniform patrol and then in 1986 he worked over the course of 20 years in undercover drug capacity which led to the arrests of major drug kingpins uh, throughout Baltimore City and as far away as Jamaica, Italy and South America. In 2007, the then patrol lieutenant reemerged in the Eastern District, where he saw the devastating results of communities in disarray, with little to no trust between the communities and the police. Because of his ability to turn around some of these worst patrols, he was then promoted to deputy major of the Northeastern District. And after engaging the community in a series of initiatives, the crime dropped dramatically in the Northeastern District. And 11 months later, um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel was promoted to major of the Eastern District. 
With 130 uh, officers under his command, Lieutenant Colonel Russell took the community, faith-based schools, and all shareholders to the next level through numerous initiatives. And it's during this time that he uh, created something called the Transformation Team. So this is a grassroots organization of community shareholders that are committed to working together to make a better Baltimore. It's also at this time that he began to experience back-to-back -back historical crime reductions with the Eastern District leading the way. The Eastern District, as many of you know, traditionally has been the most violent district, despite being the smallest. And yet the violence was cut in half. At the end of 2012, the reduction trends continue in the Eastern District, showing violent crime reductions that really haven't been seen since the 1960s. In December, as you know, uh, in, in the, at the very end of this year, uh, Lieutenant Colonel was uh, promoted and he was asked by Commissioner Batts to create the Community Partnership Division. So he's really a perfect speaker to be with us tonight. So now to start us off, let me invite uh, Professor Goff to the podium. Thank you. See if I'm skinny enough to get behind the podium here. I hope not. Apparently not. All right. <clears throat> well, thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. I feel like with all those uh, things you listed off, Diana, um, you forgot one of the most important ones. My mom always likes to talk about. I was voted best drawer in second grade. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I want to thank uh, OSI for bringing me out. Also, the Baltimore Police Department. Um, Consortium for Police Leadership and Equity is uh, starting to work with uh, BPD um, to engage the community and, and to make it the best and most equitable department it can. Um, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up. There will be no test on the materials I will be presenting tonight, though I am faculty. Um, and though I am not in the black church tradition right now, I am of the black church tradition. So you don't have to say amen while I'm talking, though some of you may feel so moved. But I am used to call and response just to let me know that folks are with me. So can I get a, a grunt from the back of the room? Let you guys, let me know you're with me? All right, thank you very much. All right, what I was asked to do um, this evening was to talk to you about some of the ways in which academics, researchers, have been studying the contemporary form of racism, right? <clears throat> and the ways we've been doing that inside of police departments, believe it or not, with the help of those police departments. It may change your mind about some of the things that we assume about how racism functions, okay, which is why the talk is called What Racism Looks Like. All right, so I want to start with the question, what causes discrimination? I'll just marinate on that for a second. What causes discrimination? When we think about what causes racism, we usually think, well, it must be bad people. Okay? And, and the color of this devil may change depending on your persuasion, but you get my general idea. Bad people, racists, cause racism. Okay? And I see a couple people shaking their heads vigorously. No, you're ahead of me on this. It turns out that doesn't fit the data. Okay? And here's what I mean by that. Okay? Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to calculate anything. Okay? This is a, a set of studies called the Princeton Trilogy. As Diana said, I am a Harvard man. I assume it's called the Princeton Trilogy because people who went to Princeton can't count past three. All right, there's clearly five things here. But these are negative stereotypes about blacks that white students at Princeton and then eventually um, a nationally representative sample 
endorsed. They said, yes, I believe this is true about black people. Black people are superstitious, lazy, ignorant, and stupid. And what we see over the years, well, it's better to go to Princeton in 2000 than in 1933 if you're going to be black. If you're making that decision, that critical decision to be black, do it in 2000 because it's better for you. Now, the decline here is not just that people have learned to be polite. This is actually things getting better. This is actually prejudice decreasing. It really, truly is. Okay. So again, if racism is called by, caused by racist people, how do we make sense of that? Because prejudice is going away. Therefore, racism is, uh, is, is fixed all over the place. We have elected a black president. Hosanna, we're done. Drop the mic. There's no reason to be talking about this anymore, right? Okay. <laughs> One person has solved the question of racism. They should get up here clearly later on. Um, but the reason why we're still talking about it is because of this. This is inequality. It's a ratio of black to white. Now, I, by the way, I know that we don't live in a country that's just black and white, but we do live in a research environment that mostly researches that. So at some point, I'm, I'm happy to open the conversation beyond that. We're going to be talking about mostly black and white in the five seconds I got. Okay? So what you see here, this is infant mortality, if you can read it, unemployment and poverty, and these are ratios. So if a black child were as likely to die in infancy as a white child, we'd see these bars at this bright white bar, one. And what do we notice? Not only are the bars well above one, but they're going up over time. So how do we make sense of declining prejudice and persistent or even increasing inequality? How do we make sense of that? Well, I will tell you the dirty little secret of psychologists. We've known bigotry was not the whole story for a long time, right? I'm, I'm almost done with statistics in terms of, of shouting them out to you, Scout's Honor. Um, in fact, what we've known is that attitudes predict about 10% of behavior at best. Our attitudes in general predict about 10% of our behavior. So what is that other 90%? Well, the goals of this... I'm going to say, we're going to need a new language to talk about that 90%. I'm going to test some with you tonight. We're going to see how it flies. Is that all right with everybody? Yeah. All right. I got a thumbs up. I like that. All right. So but the, the language I'm going to talk about is identity traps. What I mean by that, it's a label or a frame for understanding contemporary bias. It's built on human psychological universals, things that every human mind does. It turns to end badly. Okay? And there are two types. There's fast traps and there's slow traps. Now, what do I mean by a fast trap? It's automatic, it's uncontrolled, they're hard to prevent, and not thinking brings it out. So for those of you who've heard about the idea of implicit bias, a couple folks, yes? Okay? That's what we're talking about. Implicit bias is a fast trap. For those of you who've got no idea, let's go ahead and we'll, we'll, we'll play along together. What I'd like for everybody to do, just say out loud, please, the first word that comes to mind when I ask these questions. Okay? What kind of music did Peter, Paul, and Mary play? Oh, folk, we'll say. Okay, what's the wire in the middle of a wheel? Okay, what comes out of the end of a cigarette? Okay, comedians tell you these and make you laugh? If I got no money, I am? And what is the white part of an egg? Aha! What's the white part of an egg? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's the white part of an egg. Well done. Well done, Baltimore. All right. Um, now, 
most people didn't get that wrong. People in here, nobody in here is stupid, right? Nobody in here is not someone who pays attention, right? You're all smart, engaged, beautiful people from all that I can see up here, okay? Um, Why did we get that wrong? Our brains need to cut corners in order to survive a very complicated world. Right? You think about your morning commute to work. If you had to think about, well, and what turn is coming up next and what's the next turn on that, all of us would be in car accidents every day. I'm hoping that's not true of anybody in here. Okay? Our brains store it to the point where you can have a conversation, be texting over here, right, and get to work relatively safely. Don't say that in front of police. Right? Um, <clears throat> but I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that our brains are able to do. So you have this brain that's trying to help you out. And it says, I know what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a set of things that rhyme with folk, right? And then you get input into your brain. I'm looking for an egg thing. And your brain says, ooh, I know, I know, I know. Yolk. Ha-ha, what? How you like me now? But it turns out that's the wrong answer. But what was happening is your brain was trying to cut corners. It's a human thing, right? By the way, no one who said yolk is a racist by definition. You might be a yolkist but you're not a racist, okay? Now here's the problem. When it's something other than the white part of an egg, when I'm talking about women and identity, our brains associate that with being overly emotional, men and women. Our brains do that. You don't have to believe it to be true to be aware of the stereotype, okay? When we think of queer-identified folks, we tend to associate them with sexual predators. Don't have to believe that it's true. We associate that. It's automatic. It's fast. And when we think of black folks, we think of crime. Right? And you can imagine that if you think about it, and you're like you just thought about yoke, and then you say it, well, bad things can happen. Because if you think it, then you do it, then bad things can happen. That's a fast trap. It's a trap. It happens quickly. I don't want us to lose track, though, of slow traps. Slow traps are important, too. What is a slow trap? It is conscious. It tends to be self-directed. It's things about me, and it's ruminative. We think about it a lot. It's negotiated over time. Things that threaten me, like masculinity threat, right? I need to be enough of a man. Stereotype threat, I'm worried you're going to stereotype me because of who I look like, the group that I belong to. So let me make that a little bit more real for you, okay? I know this has never happened to anybody in this room, but let's say you're walking with a significant other. A person of your preferred gender walks past, okay? Your significant other catches you looking and says, oh, Would you like it if I looked a little bit more like that? To which the correct response, as we all know, is... Because what you're thinking is, I am a good and loyal partner. But that doesn't really answer the question, does it? And so you're thinking about how to fit that into the answer of the question, and what the heck am I supposed to do now? Because now it's been 10 minutes, and, and, and my sweetie is walking away, and I'm on the ground begging please... And nobody's on, on me to put a James Brown cape on me and walk me off. Right? <clears throat> now, the problem with these things is they turn up in other places. I'm smart enough, right? I'm man enough, right? I'm not a racist, right? So I think that somewhere over there is a sign telling me that I've already lost all of my time, which is great because I'm, I'm through about one quarter of my slides. So let me go ahead and, and move through quickly. I, we do experiments in my lab. I'm going to walk you through some experiments as fast as I can. In one municipality, we had 60 sworn officers, all right? They did a whole bunch of different tests, including one test that looked at the automatic association, the fast trap linking black people and apes. 
blacks and monkeys. Call this the dehumanization test. Okay? And then they looked at two different kinds of boys. Okay? Black or white boys under the age of 18 who were suspected of misdemeanors or felonies. Okay? So they looked at a boy like this in your own head. Imagine how old you think he is. And boys like this in your own head, how old is he? They saw one or the other of these and just guessed how old. Okay? Again, they were suspected of misdemeanors or felonies. You got white suspects or black suspects. And here, all I'm going to show you is the age error, how wrong they got that person's age. Right? So high numbers mean that they overestimated. They thought that the kid was older than he was. For our white boys, it's almost like, oh, he looks too young to have done that, particularly when the crime is serious, particularly when it's a felony. But not for our black boys. This is four and a half years. Let me quickly tell you what that means. For this 13-year-old, he gets to stay a child. For this 13-year-old, he's an adult. And in a criminal justice context, that means a different kind of incarceration. Okay. Now, it's easy to think, okay, well, that's a trap in your head, and that feels a lot like racism. So isn't that just a new racism? Implicit bias is implicit racism. Let me take you in a different direction. Let me take you to slow traps. It's a different experiment that we ran. right? <clears throat> not in this department, not in the department I'm going to talk about. And in a different department, we've got 70-plus percent of the officer-involved shootings involved either a male citizen approaching male, a male officer and flirting with that officer, or the male citizen referring to the male officer with a sexual orientation epithet. Fag was a deadly word. All right, so concern with approving your masculinity turns out it's a big deal. Okay? It's not just for officers, it's for all men of a certain ilk. So in this department, we had 63 patrol officers, 57 of whom were male. We got the ones who were really macho, they're high in masculinity threat, and ones who were low. We had them showed black, white, and Latino suspects. Then we measured aggression. That will be obvious why and how in a moment. So what is masculinity threat? It really is just macho. I've got to prove I'm a man all the time. Why would that predict police bias? Why would it predict racial disparities? Well, if I've got to demonstrate that I am extra manly, I'm more likely to do that with a group of people I, I stereotype as hypermasculine, right? And black men are stereotyped as hypermasculine, though I am evidence to the contrary every day. Okay? So macho recognizes macho. Right, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and plug this in here. All I want to show you is the non-responsive black suspect okay this is that buzz is a normal part of the AV in here which is why I didn't have it plugged in earlier this is the black suspect that our police officers saw at 2:30 a.m. there was a report of trespassing and suspicious activity at a convenience store on the east side of district 3 you exit the car to enter the store and speak with the owner as you exit your vehicle you notice a disoriented man holding a stick and wandering aimlessly And I apologize for those of you who have children or are scared of potty mouths, just cover ears. Oops. As you exit your vehicle, there we you go. notice a disoriented man holding a stick and wandering aimlessly. What the fuck, man? I'm just walking here. You see this? I like this. I like sticks. I hate fucking cops. Why can't 
Now, you know what? I don't understand why we can't just walk here, man. Fuck that, man. Fuck that, motherfucker. All right, so we're really clear that guy's non-compliant, right? Okay. Now, this next individual, his identity is protected, um, he doesn't like black people. I will spare you the story, but he told me to my face and his black supervisor that he doesn't like black people, and he meant it. He is, however, low on the macho meter. High racism, low macho, interacting with this guy you just saw. What are you doing? Yeah. You like that? You like sticks? Yeah, you know, that ain't nice to say, huh? Hey. Well, you know, people are getting scared because you're waving that stick around and banging on stuff. Well, other people don't like it. What do you think? And you can just feel the racism coming off him, right? No, not so much. Wish this guy was in my neighborhood you know, five nights out of five, nine times out of ten, ten times out of ten. Now, this next guy genuinely enjoys black people. Right? Many black friends, some of his best friends really are black. It's true. Um, low racism, high macho, responding to the exact same video. Again, for those with sensitive ears, cover them now. Denver, please drop the fucking stick right now! Drop the fucking stick! Denver, please drop the... Drop the stick, asshole! Drop it! Drop the stick! Okay, that's a retrofitted 9mm. That's a real gun that's uh, been taken out. It doesn't actually shoot bullets. It shoots laser pointer type stuff. Um, so we can tell where the person's shooting. That was two in the head and two in the chest in case you missed it. Okay. So <clears throat> that was an in-policy shooting. You have a non-compliant suspect who's approaching with a weapon. Right? That doesn't necessarily even make the papers the next day. But it might not be a necessary shooting. Okay. For those of you who are interested in the stats, we got our, our low macho threat guys here, our high macho threat guys here, white and blue, Latino and green-ish, and black purple. It looks like this. Our high masculinity threat officers are much more likely to shoot black than our low masculinity threat officers. This is not racism in the way that we tend to know it, but it has racially objectionable outcomes. Okay? Here's the key point. If we're looking for racists, we bench that first officer, who I want in my neighborhood right now, please, and we missed the second one. Okay? It's the benefit of talking about it in terms of traps. Because a trap, you can be a habitually falling into a trap, so-and-so. But rooms are set up with traps. Employers set traps for their employees. We set traps for each other. And what that does is it allows us for a language where, yeah, you have to take responsibility for the things that you do. But racism is so deep that it's not just what I mean in my heart and my mind. It's a set of things that our minds have learned to do, that we set up for each other. So we need to be more vigilant than just to the content of our character. We need to be vigilant to the situations we put ourselves in. 
I think I'm past that zero time, so I'm going to go ahead and pass the mic off. Um, so thank you very much for taking time to listen to this. We need, we need some more stage up here or something. All right. <clears throat> well, Dr. Phil, thank you so much. And Raji, I don't want you throwing them signs up on me. So he, had, he took five of my minutes. That's good, okay? I'm going to be real quick. Remember, I got a gun. <laughs> no, but good evening, everyone. For those that don't know me, I'm Lieutenant Governor Anthony Brown. <laughs> Now, I'm, I'm Melvin Russell, and uh, we want to thank Enoch Crack for having us out to participate tonight. Uh, we thank Diane Morris. We thank my good friend, Mo Dixon, and uh, so many that are here tonight. I call him Mo. It's Monique, but I call him Mo. Um, let, me, let, me, let me start by saying this, because I want to get through this real quick so we can get to the, the most important part, and that's you. Let me start by saying that the income medium, hear me well, the income medium, race, religion, creed, geographical location, Status of its where you live, in other words, who you are in your neighborhood, your influence. Level of cleanliness or even the level of crime in your community should never ever dictate the quality of service that a community receives, especially from providers, service providers. And I deem that we are, talking about police, probably one of your most important service providers. Now, with that, because we're having an honest conversation or we're having this conversation, and, and you got to understand that, listen, I, I'm really not into having conversations without honesty and transparency, because uh, without them, I think you're really wasting my time, and I, I certainly think I would be wasting your time. So I want to be real honest with you here tonight. I want to be transparent with you, because I value certainly my time, and I absolutely value yours. So let me say this. If I was to say that same list of characteristics that I talked about that makes up a neighborhood, if I would say that they do not come into play in how police render or service their communities, I'd be telling you a lie. I'd be telling you a lie. Can we be perfectly honest here tonight? Uh, it does matter. It shouldn't, but it does. You can just look in this city and look around and look at the great service or the disparity of service. How many know that the same service that we get here in as a police may give or provide in Roland Park. Y'all hear me? Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot different than maybe the neighborhoods around Clifton Park. A lot different from Federal Hill down to Cherry Hill. Captain, I ain't talking about your Cherry Hill. She's from Denver. Cherry Hill there is plush. It ain't our Cherry Hill in Baltimore. Let me just say that. No one can tell me that the makeup of your neighborhood and whatever it makes it up doesn't dictate, doesn't transfer into the type of policing services. And you know what? I don't think it's just in Baltimore. I think it's across this nation. I, I really do. I, I think it's somewhat of a phenom, an epidemic, if you will. And I'm not going to go into why those are because I believe Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil Goff gave some excellent reasons that began to open up our eyes to why those are. 
Dr. Phil. Now I know two Dr. Phil's. <laughs> I got Dr. Phil Leaf. Dr. Phil. I should have been Phil. I got to go home and talk to my mama because I could have been a doctor. But let me just say this. At the end of the day, no matter where you live, no matter what your beliefs are, no matter your income medium, your, your beliefs, your religion, your creed, none of that. None of that should ever, ever dictate how we as police officers service to you. See, here's what I know about police officers. We, we pretty much overall, overall, we pretty much are very good protectors. But at the same time, overall, I really think overall that we're lousy, lousy, lousy customer service. I, I really do. I really do. You ain't had to say it that loud, though. You ain't, you ain't, you ain't. <laughs> but I say that because, at least in this police department, I think that's a problem. You know how you can go from one neighborhood to the next and be a total different type of police officer. And more importantly, I know that our com police commissioner that we have, and we've got a great police commissioner. If y'all don't know that, we've got a great police commissioner. I don't know, this has been five sessions, and, you know, Diane, you tell me, has a police been up here yet? I don't know if it has or not. Soon. But before me, in five years, has anybody been up here? Uh-huh. Yeah, y'all, yeah, y'all. Commissioner Batts, he gets it. And I'm not, I'm not belittling, this is my 13th police commissioner. Well, Commissioner Batts gets it, and he sees it, and he's one that wants to change it and do something about it. See, we've been absent of, in this police department, we've been absent of a citywide police community component. We haven't had one in over five years. I'm so sorry. We haven't had one in over five years. And he thought it was very important to have that because he, like I, believe in relationships. He believed relationships are very important. So I.E., and you heard Diane said at the beginning of this year, he tasked me to build out a community component citywide because it's been missing again for over five years. Some of y'all may remember Lieutenant Colonel Rick Height. Some of you may remember him. Some of you may remember before him Lieutenant Colonel Otis Sistrunk. But they've been gone for over five years now. And so we've been absent of that community component. And so what I'm saying to you is he has added a citywide city component to the department because he and I absolutely believe that it is a strong solution to what we're talking about here today. And here's what I'm talking about. First, let me say this. He's tasked me to build out this community citywide, and, and so we've called it community. I thought it would be a neat tag, so because uh, I wanted the name to speak to it. Community Partnership Division. I mean, I think just that, is, that itself, you can read a whole lot into that, and you'll probably be right. Because it's all about, I, I personally, and he believes, I personally believe in partnerships through leadership or leadership through partnerships. I believe what's so important is, uh, let me just do this, because then I'm going to sit down. There, there are four basic pillars that the community partnership, and this might be important if you're jotting down anything, four basic pillars that we're building out this division on, and one is faith-based. One is faith-based because we believe it's important for the city, for churches, whether it's a mosque, a synagogue, a, a, a Catholic church, or whatever it is, we think it's important for them to be engaged, not just with police, but with the community. See, because I can remember a day in this city when you wouldn't even walk past uh, a church, a synagogue, or anything smoking a cigarette. You, you put your cigarette out before you walk past the church. If you were cursing, you would stop cursing 
Because you was great to walk past the church. If you was drinking a 40 or drinking your little shorty, come on, somebody. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Drinking your little shorty, you put the top back on it, stick it in your pocket, straighten up your back and walk past the church. As soon as you got back, you take your shorty out and you start drinking again. But today, look at it today. I've seen sacred buildings urinated upon. I've seen people dealing drugs right in front of the church, on the, the stoops of the church. Wow, listen to me. Worship is going on in the church. Times have changed. And I really believe it's because of relationships have broken down. So faith based community policing, because one of the things he and I both believe that is so vital in this city is that see somewhere along the way we've lost our trust or the city or the community has lost the trust that we used to have. I can remember 20, 25 years ago when I was walking the beat. I love the community. Community loved me. Listen, I'm so old that we didn't have radios strapped to our side. They were in the car. So once you was out of your car and walking, and we did that all the time, that if you got in trouble, and I've gotten in trouble a whole lot of times, got in fights, getting the best of, and sometimes someone getting the best of me. And I couldn't get to my car to get to radio. But you know who used to call for backup for me? Somebody say it. A neighbor. A community. Because we had a relationship. I didn't run to the restaurants, man. I wasn't eating fast food back then. I was eating my food in the neighborhood. I was going into the homes of those that I protected and served. I was going to their bathroom, except for Mr. Brown. He had a nasty bathroom. I would not. I went there one time. I said, I ain't going back up in there. But when I'm walking in the middle of the day and in the middle of the night in the cold of winter, man, Mrs. Brown, Miss Smith or whoever, stick their head out. Melvin, come over here and get a cup of hot chocolate because I didn't drink coffee. But my community knew me that well. They knew what I drank. We got to go back, y'all. We got to go back to building relationships. So community policing. And I've got to, we got to teach our young officers as well as our community what it means to be in relationship with each other. The other thing is reentry. And I don't like to say ex-offenders, I call them returning citizens. We can't keep up this madness where they come out and go in and come out and come in and come out and go in. And every time they come out, they get better and better and worse and worse at what they do. We can't have this visual, vicious recidivism going on in our city. So we're building out a program. And I see Renard Brooks in here from the mayor's office, and he's part of that team. And we're working together to build out that program because we need to get to those high-risk individuals that every time they come out into your community, your burglaries go up, your shootings go up, your homicides go up, your cars start getting broken into to get again. Because it's not everybody in the community. It's just less than probably 5% of our total community that are tearing up our community. Y'all hear what I'm saying? So we got to address them while they're on the inside. And at the same time, address situations while they're on the outside. Because if my daddy just went to jail again and again and again, I got some issues. I'm acting out in school. So I got to deal with that person, on those children, and that environment on the outside also. I got to deal with them before they come out. I got to continuously deal with those returning citizens when they come back home. And then the last one is youth. I think it's important. We can't ignore our youth. I need to know why are there flash mobs running through our city. I need to know why you're insta messaging and tweeting one school to another, say, meet me here. And you come and you clash and just try to beat each other brains out. I need to know what's going on. And so we got a dialogue. We got to stop building our programs. We talk about community policing, right? Community partnerships. We got to start building our programs or stop building our programs that the youth never asked for. And then wonder why they ain't coming. Can we just sit down and have a dialogue? Why, who we, why are we scared of them? It used to be us. Why are we scared of them? Sit down and talk to them. And you know what? They'll talk back. They will talk back. So I'm going to just say this and I'm going to take my seat because, Roger, where am I at? Roger, where am I at? Four minutes. I only need two. So here's the thing. 
I will say this. We have a lot of work to do, but we can do it. We can absolutely make this city better. And it can come through strong community partnerships. We got to learn to love on each other again. We got to learn to care about each other again. We've got to even deal, meaning our department's got to deal with our police officers again. You know what? I've got to get the police back in a situation and understand that you can't be an effective peacemaker in a community while you're on duty. If while you're off duty, you have no peace. If you don't have peace in your home, if you're going through financial problems, your wife is cheating on you, your husband's cheating on you, things are going on in the home. That's got to become important to me as a commander. If you tipping that bottle, I can't ignore that and having you as a, an effective working alcoholic mm, dealing in my community. I can't have you angry, no peace, than going in the community because can I tell you that anger is going to transfer in the community. I got to learn to teach officers how to interact with the community, how to get out of the car and not stereotype. Our brothers and sisters on the corner, because everybody standing on the corner ain't bad, y'all. Everybody's not bad. Everybody's not bad. So we got to go back. So we're building out some tremendous programs. We're very excited. I see some partners all in here. I see Angie back there. How you doing, Angie? We done built out a, a community center over in East Baltimore where we cut out crime. You heard Diane said in three years, the first three years, we went from being homicides in the 80s, 50s to the 80s, down to 25. May not be important to you, but that's 25 plus lives that have been saved every year, every year. Shootings going from 100 plus down to 64. That's less people have to go to the ER room. That excites me. May not excite you, but that excites me and lets me know by us coming together and communicating and talking and getting our cops to get out of the cars and talk to folk. It's working. Community policing works. Partnerships work, but it can't be one way. It can't be just the police. I'm beating them in the head. I'm twisting their arms. But at the same time, I'm screaming at the churches. Because unlike Dr. Phil, I loved, well, he loves church too. But, but I could take an amen. amen. I don't mind an amen. amen. And this city is going to rise and be the greatest city in this nation. Because we are going to get along. Because we got but one Baltimore. And if we're going to survive in this city... Then we got to learn to get. I am so tired of the police department being the last when you poll it and say, who is your greatest service provider in the city? And the police department always comes at the bottom of the heap. I know we got work to do. I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and do that work. I'm just wondering if anybody's willing to work with us. God bless you. Well, <laughs> well, folks, uh, you all ready to have a risk discussion? So as we, uh, if you've heard the presentations uh, and Diana's guidance in the beginning, uh, cards, I believe, are on the chairs for everybody. If you could begin to uh, put your, your questions down and someone from the OSI team will come by and pick them up. And if you hear uh, other, other thoughts as we have this discussion, uh, please feel free to continue to put your cards forward, and then at the appropriate time, uh, they'll be handed to me, and we'll ask the questions and, and continue the conversation. I have a, a foundational question I want to ask each of you to, to consider. And before you uh, reply, uh, Colonel Russell, I want to ask you uh, if you could, because it really didn't come out clear in your introduction or your comments, why you even became a police officer. 
Uh, so the question I want to ask both of you to respond to is the research seems clear that blacks and Latinos are arrested at higher rates. Uh, you talked about implicit bias held by police. How can police and communities work to eliminate these biases, and is it even possible? Uh, but before we get to that question from each of you, could you share a little bit about why you became, you chose to become a police officer? Well, mine's, mine's is real easy. It's, uh, you may find it funny. Uh, it wasn't my first option. It was my second option. My first option was to be a marine biologist, an oceanographer. I wanted to be the first black jock in the Y'all hear what I'm saying? Uh, but it didn't work out because I did go away to college for it, down a little school down in Florida, Florida Institute of Technology, and uh, screwing around at the age of 18 in a deep tank, I ruptured both eardrums. To this day, I still can't hear properly out of both of them. I can't dive the way I want to dive, take an airplane, I got to plug them. So I came back and I felt, long story short, my nickname going through high school was Starsky. Y'all hear me? Some of y'all, anybody old enough to remember who Starsky was? Oh, all right. Funny thing, Hutch. Yeah, my, be my best friend was Hutch. True story. I had the car and everything. I wouldn't paint it that red with that white stripe, but I had it and it was blue. And I actually, before I even became a police, I bought, went to a little sunny surplus and I bought one of those red lights. And when I thought no police were looking, I slap it up and I zip all through the streets. But then I got stopped one day. But bottom line is, I went down to the police department, applied to be a cadet, never thought I would be here. Always wanted to go to California to meet Starsky and Hutch and take their place. But the bottom line is, I fell in love once I joined the Baltimore City Police Department. I got bit by working with the police officers and the detectives, even as a cadet, because I would read the reports before they pick them up. And so it stuck. So here I am almost 34 years later, still doing what I love, still have a passion for it. So that's how I begin to do Dr. Phil? Well, I, just, I think it's kind of amazing the overlaps on this. I guess I'll move this this way. Um, I'm, as you're talking about wanting to be the black Jacques Cousteau, I'm looking down here at my deputy director because um, I was just having a conversation. Me and my best friend both started out wanting to be marine biologists. Both end up studying racism in law enforcement. What's up, man? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're waiting for the next generation. <laughs> get there. Um, so get to, to get to your question, um, <clears throat> is there anything that we can do and how do we do it? Um, I, the answer for me of that first question is that it's a faith question. Is there anything we can do? Well, God wouldn't put us here without something to do, right? God would not put us in a life without hope, by definition. There is no God that can be worshipped that would do that. So yes, there's something we can do. Okay. I didn't know you were going to go full revival. But since you, since you took us there, I'm comfortable being all the way there. And I will now go ahead and take an amen now that I'm, I'm freed of my statistics. Now, how do we do that? That's a harder question. right? The how-to is a harder question. But I would say we begin with this. Let's recognize that if there's racism in policing, let's say, let's say there can be racism in policing. That's an uncontroversial con uh, comment to make here. If there's racism in policing, then maybe, just maybe, it's also in the schools. And it's in employment. And it's in housing. And it's in healthcare, right? It's part of the human problem. It's part of the American legacy. It is the greatest stain and the unfinished product of our democracy. So if you want to stop it in policing, why are we looking as if police are the problem, right? Police are part of the problem and must be part of the solution, right? It's culture-wide. Implicit biases come from us reflecting those things back. So whatever the rate is, whatever the, the disparity is of actual crimes being committed black to white in Baltimore, I know that it's amplified by a factor of two to three, I know because of the work of Travis Dixon, in terms of on the media. So however many, if, if, if blacks are twice as likely to get arrested 
in Baltimore, right? It's higher than that, I know. But if, if that were the case, right, they'd be four times as likely to be shown getting arrested on the evening news. Okay? Um, if black children are twice as likely to fail out of school, right, <clears throat> black schools are four times as likely to be shown failing on the evening news, to be talked about in the newspaper, to be tweeted about between social media. Right? So how do we begin solving the problem? We begin looking at this as a broader issue of culture and not just a problem of racist police. Right? We're talking about this is a human problem. It's a human problem. It's a democratic problem. It's an American problem. And the last thing I'll say, you can't do it by just saying, I'm good in my heart. Right? No one who says, I'm good in my heart and that should be enough is pleasing to that endeavor, is pleasing to God. Right? Because this is something we take seriously as a legacy. If you take your family legacy seriously to honor it and to cherish it, we take a democratic legacy seriously as American people. Right? We can't be taking it seriously if the only people we're concerned in terms of changing are ourselves. Let the choir say amen. amen. <laughs> All right, so the ACLU of Maryland recently released a report about marijuana arrests nationwide. It found that in Baltimore, blacks are five times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession when compared to white residents. The state of Maryland spent $106 million to enforce marijuana laws. What can be done to reduce these numbers? Frank, um, <laughs> I'm going to say it in one word, legalize it. I'm going to just say it. Legalize it. Right. Yeah, but, but we all understood that if you just said legalize, we'd have been all the way there. Yeah. All right. So let me, let me stretch that uh, and not get to the point where we're talking about legalizing all drugs, right? Although that could be a point of uh, discussion. But the economic value in drugs is so compelling in society that it, it entices people, uh, and I'm not talking about Raheem on the corner, I'm talking about judge so-and-so, uh, doctor so-and-so, people who can touch the drug, invest in it, but never really be on the corner of an urban community. Uh, what do we do? Are there any kind of creative things that you've ever thought about in terms of how we address this issue of uh, illegal drugs in our community that disproportionately affect black men in particular and Latino boys? So that's good. So, so number one is through education. I know we've been doing that for decades, but you know, I believe because I talk to gang members all the time. I talk to 20 years of narcotics. I talk to a lot, a lot of people, and I believe. Most of the individuals that I talk to, men and women that are involved and engaged in this, really don't want to be a part of it. Not, not once they get into it. Not once they're in it. I mean, they look up to it because it looks glamorized, but once they're in it, they desire a way out and to come out. So if they desire that, and I'm talking 85% easily, 85% of those that are caught up, the ones, the Raheem that you're talking about of the world, we can get them out if, again, we come together as a community, right? meaning our businesses, because one of the things that Baltimore is lacking, like many probably cities across this nation, is jobs. And once, and once you get arrested, then jobs become even more scarce to you, right? Mm -hmm. 
so you know one of the things that we've done you asked what do, what do we thought about one of the things we did about two weeks ago we had a business roundtable so we called the the corporations of baltimore so what am i talking about the under armors the constellations uh, we call the major corporations the hotels and pulled them in and said listen this is a win-win situation you saying we you mean the police department or i pulled them together i had i had the blessings of the police commissioner so i, I pulled them together so we pulled them together and said listen we need to create jobs. We have young people and not so young people that are willing to disengage from doing all these illegal activities. But we have, listen, I can't, you know, one of the things I'm going to be doing is having a real gang summit. None of y'all will be invited because it ain't for you. The media won't be invited because it's not for them. It's, it's because I care about those that are engaged in it, knowing that the vast majority of them want out. They went in, but now they want out. So the only way to get them out is to give them what they're asking. I talk to gangbangers all the time. And the main two things they want is we need homes, we need a place to lay our heads, and we need jobs. You'd be surprised how many people want to come out of the gang lifestyle if they could get jobs and homes and make sure they're going to be in a safe environment. So the only reason I haven't done it up until this point is because I don't, I'm not going to play with them. But once I have that in my hand, meaning jobs and transitional homes, safe havens for them, then we will build, once we build that out, we will call them. So we believe we're pretty much there, close there, because now we have businesses and other entities, because it takes a lot of partners to do that. A lot of partners, churches, it takes a lot of partners, communities, it takes a lot of partners. So once we build that out, you'll see a great decline in drug trafficking in Baltimore City. A lot of you looking at me like, yeah, whatever. You'll see a great decline if the partners come together. So then at the doctor, then if the lawyer wants to make money because there's one financing these, then they got to go in the corner and they got to sell that product. But we're going to educate our young people so they get off of these corners, so they don't understand they don't have to kill each other. We're going to make them work together because we got people want to say we don't have gangs in the city. We got gangs in the city. I remember when they first developed back almost 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago. Try to tell the bosses we got gangs. We ain't got gangs in Baltimore. Okay, keep playing like we ain't got gangs. And now look where we are today. So we're building our programs, too many to talk about here today. But that's why I said one of those four pillars was youth. I wasn't mandated to build out a youth component, but I knew how important it was for this city and the residents of this city if we don't ignore our youth. Because our youth, I look at two things, and I don't have time to talk about it. I look at two things that's either going to destroy this city or build this city up that you cannot ignore. And if you want to talk to me later, we can do that. you got to look at our youth in this city. And you got to look at our waterways. I'll explain that later. If I can just, if I can amen to that and add a little bit of wisdom from my mama. From your mama. Because, so, when I was growing up, my mom used to uh, look at children behaving poorly in public and say, future juvenile delinquent. Used to say that all the time. Right? And occasionally smack me in the back of the head for something someone else was doing. Right. Just say, I don't have, I, I see you looking at that, thinking it looks like a good idea. Just stop it. So I remember very clearly uh, we were in the mall. Um, <clears throat> we were doing Christmas shopping. I saw a bad kid acting bad. Mom got no control. Right. I looked at my mom. I said, don't hit me. Juvenile delinquent. Right. And she looked at me real sad. She said, no. She said, a parent's first job is to make it compelling and reasonable for you to act right. And that child hasn't had nobody make it reasonable to act right. Okay? 
Now I want to take that and translate that to the issues of illegal narcotics. If it makes more financial sense, if it makes more long-term future sense to be selling drugs than it is to be getting a job, the only kind of jobs that are in those communities, what would a reasonable person do? Right? And have we, as a society, made it more reasonable for folks to be going to college and trying to get those jobs or slang it? And if we've made it more reasonable to sell, guess what? That's our bad, not theirs. That's good. That's good. So here's a, here's a question from the audience. <clears throat> can, uh, can you comment on institutional racism in the police department uh, and I guess the comment here or slash question is uh, black officers are harder on African-American youth than white officers. Hey, y'all are a hard crowd. Right? <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I don't want to even understand, and, and Doc probably can answer it better because he studies these type of things. I don't even understand that, but that's an absolute true statement. I can remember... Um, uh, when I was a commander in the Eastern District and I had, um, they call them the jump out boys, a lot of street language, jump out boys, narcotic, plainclothes guys. And I had a black female detective who was worked with them. She was part of that crew, come to me and she was crying. Came in my office, I said, what's wrong? She said, I don't even know what to do. I said, well, what's wrong? She says, I watched my African-American partner use the N-words more than I've ever heard over and over and over again while slamming down some African-American kids where it didn't take all that. And I watched the white officers, you can see they were uncomfortable with it. And yet he was very comfortable with it. And I said, do me a favor, because we can't tolerate that behavior, because it has become a learned, crazy phenomenon in our city. We can't tolerate that. Please give me his name. And she wouldn't do it. Now, it's over 100 of them. And so you're talking about probably 40-some-odd are African-Americans. And there's no way I would be able to figure out. Because this, this shit came to me. It didn't just happen. This had happened weeks prior. And it was just starting to just really mess with her. But she says, I can't because I'd be outcasted. I can't because they wouldn't want to work with me anymore. I can't because I can't turn my back on my partner. I said, but your partner is wrong. And there comes a point in time when you got to stand for either righteousness or you will stand for wrong. And I began to try to make it easier for her. I would share the story about uh, back in the early 90s uh, when one of my African-American partners and we were a very close knit, small drug crew. And we went where other police officers were afraid to go. Some of y'all remember them. They used to be called the projects. Yeah. Police wouldn't even go up in the, some projects. They wouldn't even go up in now public housing. And. And because it was a different type of mentality in that environment, lots of officers that did go in would abuse them because it was almost accepted. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about? It was almost accepted, wrong, but almost accepted to get beat on, to be treated like a piece of trash. It was almost accepted. And it was accepted when they started whipping your butt. It was accepted. And I can remember one of my partners, African-American partners, was just abusing them so bad, hitting on them. When it didn't need to be getting hit on. Started stealing. I remember she one time took a bunch of Negro T-shirts. 
Negro Baseball League t-shirts, started taking baseball cards, camera. I remember going to a wedding one time and, and she had taken a camera. And we're at the wedding celebrating the, the celebration of one of our partners and we're all posing and I realize that she's taking a picture, that's the camera that she had taken from this home. And it got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore, so I said, enough is enough. And I saw a reporter. Long story short, I told everybody else, no one else is testifying. Because I know how hard it is to testify against another cop, especially when it's somebody you love. But when they turn sour, you got to do what you got to do, especially when you warn them time and time again. And I was sharing this with her and telling her what I had to go through, trying to give her strength. And she almost got there. But at the end of the day, she never got to the point where she would tell on that officer. So no doubt in my mind, that officer is still running around, still abusing community members, probably still logging complaints. So I'm not denying wherever that question came from. We know it happens. And I say this to the public. Don't turn a blind eye. Pile up the complaints. When you see this these type of individuals in your community, what I'm saying to you is report it over and over and over again. One of the things Commissioner Bass has done is he has cleansed his internal investigation. He's totally wiped it out and put new leadership in there. He's looking at it now where maybe he don't even have to put detectives in there. It shouldn't be anybody lower than the rank of a sergeant. Make it easy to go after the bad seeds in the department and pull them by the root and get them out of the agency. So I know it's happening, but understand this, that Police Commissioner Batts, he doesn't accept it, and he's doing his best to root it out of this department. I said it before, we got a great commissioner. So, Doc, this is a little bit of an extended question, so bear with me here. Okay. Uh, in your analysis of the data, how important is the issue of social engineering, media perception of socioeconomic differences, and overall perception of poverty affecting police department's leadership, officers' treatment of black youth? Should there be training on this issue? Okay, so that was a, a smart and elongated question. I'm going to try and make it dumb and then answer it. Um, does class matter? Mm. Okay. Yes. Now let me answer a little bit more. Um, <clears throat> our identities are frequently excuses to stop treating people as fully human. Okay. They need to be the access point for accessing people's full humanity. But we use them as shortcuts so we can treat people like objects that are in our way from point A to point B. Okay. So we think about that in terms of race, and we've gotten good at thinking about it in terms of race because we treat people badly in terms of race very well. We haven't learned to think about class in the same kind of way because it's not as easily identifiable, and the cues to social class are not the same from person to person. But yes, we use those cues, and sometimes police officers use those cues to dehumanize people. Okay. And so, absolutely, you can train people to do that. But I think the broader message is, how do we have a police force that recognizes their number one job is to recognize the humanity in the least among us? And that's, how, that's one way to keep us all feeling fully human. Okay? So, that, I mean, that's, that's what I would say in answer to, to I think, what I he heard in that question. So, so just like Doc saying, one of the things we got to learn to do is, and the police commissioner, he is tra changing about training to incorporate a lot of these very things that you're, you're concerned about because they greatly concern him. And you've got to make an officer look back in the mirror. 
Um, so some of, I mean, we've got a lot of initiatives that we're putting into place now, and you're going to start seeing if you're a Baltimore citizen. You know, we're going to start rolling out these things like coffee with a cop in the community. You know, your little cafes in your community, we're going to start dealing with it, not dealing, but partnering up with those business owners and saying we want you to be able to just pour out coffee for our community members and our police officers. Because one of the things I want to do is send police officers into these coffee with a cop atmosphere. And it's an environment so we can have a transparent, we can have an honest dialogue so you can talk to them. Why do you do this in our community? At the same time, it's not a battering session. We want to be able to praise them where they need to be praised. But at the same time, we want to get some answers. And they're going to go in without a chip on their shoulder because we want to make sure of that. But we want to be able to dialogue with that. See, I and, and there's a lot of relational initiatives that we're going to do, ride-alongs and all kinds of things that we're going to do. Making sure they get out of their car, park their car, and when you walk in your community. So it's important. Walk your community. It's important. Churches, walk your community. Because the officers that work that community will be mandated to park their car unless the district's on fire, and walk with you, and not just to be walking the walk, but dialogue with you. Not in a confrontational way, not talking about with you, because they're not going to be confronting you, but not even with the bad guys in the street. It's a time to build relationships, because at the end of the day, it is hard to abuse a community that you're responsible for and you're patrolling when you begin to build a relationship. See, like, like Doc was saying, we have somehow de dehumanized not only our community, but even ourselves. Because you can't treat people any old kind of way unless somehow you became so dull and numb and you don't have any more compassion. You're not sensitive to situations anymore. So if we can reignite those qualities that are important back in an officer. And it can only be done when he's confronted, when she's confronted with herself. And because a community is speaking back to them in a loving, but sometimes a harsh, not harsh, but a, a, a real way. Right. We're here for you. But we just don't like the way you talk to our young boys when you come through the community. We know you got a job to do, and maybe they'll say something back to you. Well, you know, it bothers me when I come to the community and I get a shooting, and I know it's 50 people out, but now all of a sudden I can't find one witness. Let's work it out together. Let's work it out. Somebody laughing because they know that happens all the time. But let's work it out together. We've got to get to a place where we trust each other again. And you're only going to do that through something I call building relational equity. We have poor relational equity in this city and we have to build that back up we have to get to the point where you don't have a problem picking up the phone and saying officer Johnson I've got something going on in my neighborhood and I trust you enough can you come on in can you take care of it officer Johnson I'm just calling to say I appreciate you and they call you up we got to get back to that it worked 20 years ago I know it can work today so I appreciate what you said because that's just listen the answer is right in this room it's all of us mm -hmm. it's all of us so, Doc, uh, in your work around the country, uh, have you been able to identify any best practices in terms of dealing with this issue of uh, implicit bias and racism uh, in communities comparable to Baltimore? Well, let me say, not to flatter Baltimore, but there ain't no community like Baltimore. Okay? Because <laughs> uh, we got the Ravens? Uh, <laughs> really, are we going to go all the way there tonight? <laughs> Come on, y'all. Y'all know what time it is. And the Orioles. All right, I'm, I'm gonna just bracket that in the in the spirit of brothership, you know, brotherhood. We just gonna bracket that. Um, but so I mean, there are similarities to communities. That, you know, we're all the same and we're all different. You know, Captain C's been saying that all day long. We're all the same and we're all different. Um, we have seen some best practices. I was talking about it um, at OSI earlier. 
Um, I'm going to get away from this hot mic just a little bit. Everybody in the back can hear me? Yes, sir. All right. Um, two things that I see as a commonality for departments that engage in one of the hardest things that there is to do, which is whole scale cultural change in a large organization. Okay? One is you need a strong and committed leadership team. One chief ain't going to do it. Right? You need a command staff that's on the same page, committed to the same thing, all headed in the same direction. Okay? Now, that's a hard thing for any new chief, new commissioner, new sheriff to do, especially if, you don't, if you're not familiar with everybody on your team. <clears throat> but getting a committed leadership team is absolutely essential. In law enforcement, more so than almost anything else. Law enforcement in the military. In situations where you have chain of command real strong, you need a, a serious leadership team. Okay? The other thing is the recognition of a basic psychological truth that is a hard thing for most of us to wrap our minds around. Attitudes change behavior <coughs> less than behavior changes attitudes. Let me say that a different way. Behavior changes attitudes more than attitudes can change behavior. That is, if you put somebody in a situation where the right answer is to do the right thing, you get a lot of people that look real honorable. If you put someone in a situation where no one's going to know that they did the wrong thing, you're going to find out a lot about character. Right? So that's great. We want our officers to be of high character. But you know what the best solution is if you're a leader? Get rid of those situations. Right? Have, only, have as many situations as you can where the right answer is obvious and it's also the right thing to do. Guess what? You'll have high character officers all the time. Okay? So if you can get people to act right, whether or not they want to, whether or not that's what's in their heart, right, then they will feel right after doing it long, long enough. That's why your mom and dad made you make up your room and make your bed, right, every morning or every night, <clears throat> or every morning and every night, right? It's not so that you would just feel like you had to all the time, because what happened when you went away from home? You left your bed a mess, because it was awesome to be able to do. <laughs> And you stayed up late and you ate chocolate too much, right? And that's how you end up looking like this. Oh, no. <clears throat> well, what happens is when you want peace and calm in your life, you know what? Like, I got to make the bed because I remember what that felt like. Okay? And it's the same thing when you're trying to change a culture. Those two things. Get that behaviors change attitudes and have a strong team that's committed around you. And then you have a chance to move the needle. So... Uh... With a rise in female offenders, how has the interaction between police and female offenders changed? Are there special considerations, uh, are special considerations necessary? Are special considerations necessary? I don't know if there's really, you got some statistics back there? Somebody said that? This is a question. Okay. I don't yeah. know if, 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 I haven't seen a great rise in, in female offenders. I really haven't. Um, I think we have enough in place. You know, you can't, you can't, if you just pay attention when officers are stopping young ladies on the street, uh, whether they're going to get arrested or not, you won't see an engagement. You should, if you do, call 396. <laughs> if you, they will call a female officer, and you probably see this all the time, and that female officer will do whatever body search or whatever, and it should be done in a dignified way. You know, whether they have to pull them to the side into a little alcove, put them in a police car and do it. Um, even when they come to the station house, uh, 
there's certain things that are in place, policies. So I'm not sure where that question might have came from or why it might arose, but I, I think we are pretty fair in dealing with our female offenders. I really do. I really do. And I'm sorry if that don't satisfy you, but I think we, we do a good job. Can I speak to the rise in female offenders? Um, so I, I think where it's coming from is it, it, it's either observational question, which you know can't be wrong on that, or, or it's based on the rise in women who are incarcerated. Okay, that is not the same thing as a rise in female offenders. So, right, it's a, the rise in number of people that we're putting in jail. Okay, and understand there's certain people we're not allowed to put in jail. As a culture, we have decided that for the most part, rich people, we can't do that to rich people, okay? Right? Too big to fail, too rich to jail. That's kind of how we're operating. And so what's, what's going on is they have literally run out of male bodies to incarcerate in the neighborhoods where it's okay to incarcerate somebody. They're like, all right, well, let's get, let's get his wife, too. Let's get his old lady, too. That's what's going on. And, and that's, that is both casual, irreverent, and true. Okay, so if we're going to talk about it, right? It, 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 so it, it is, and it ends up being true that there are more women being incarcerated, right? But it's not because of anything like an uptick in women participating in crime. What it is is a lack of available male bodies to incarcerate in the neighborhoods where we do that. So I feel like that needs to be known. So. Man, we're going to stop asking these serious questions. We're going to some stuff we <laughs> don't say, Don't ask serious questions if you don't want serious answers now. Hold up. So uh, for both of you, would you say men are the key? And can engaging them in barbershops be viable, bringing them to understanding of God's purpose for them? Well, I mean, I don't think that it would be appropriate to be on this stage and say, no, men don't need to understand God's purpose for them. No, that would, I would never say that. Um, so yes, of course, that is important. I would push back against the framing of the question, are men the key? Um, no more so than women. When I get asked, well, what is something that, that as a police department we can do to reduce violence on the street? I say hire women. Why? Because <laughs> women are great at de-escalating conflict. Okay? Now, if you're a man in a fraught relationship, you may not feel that way right now today. Okay? <laughs> But believe me, when, when violence is on the table and women are in a, in a uniform, they are great at de-escalation. Okay? So it's not the case that I feel that, that getting to men where they live and, and teaching those spiritual principles is the key. In fact, sometimes the key is, why is it that major city law enforcement is 87% men? Because we have not made law enforcement attractive to women. If we did, we'd have a more peaceful, more balanced, more equitable law enforcement. Right? And by the way, we'd have better, more accepting men there, too. So I wouldn't put it all on men's shoulders. I wouldn't, wouldn't do that at all. Now, I, I, will, I will say, this is not taken away from Doc, because you might have me tapped into my female persuasion to help me with the streets now. But um, we do call men out. That's part of our strategies. We, we call men that are doing the right thing. That's why we lean on the churches. We call for the men to come back into the community mm -hmm. to be that role model because there's a role model out there. It just might not be the right role model. So we call on our men. You know, I'll give you this. I'll give you this one example. I remember um, about three years ago we had a 15-year-old brutally raped in East Baltimore, dragged into a vacant house. It made it made news. Everybody, a lot of people here may remember that. And I can remember my heart was broken because I called on the churches and I said, I need the men. I, 
called every, almost every church that I had in the district. I need the men to come out and be a presence in the community. We got men on the corners. We got men here. We got men everywhere. They need models. I need men to come out in this community. And I get to get one man to come out. Wow. Not one. Mm. So then I called on my brothers from the nation. And I called on them and I said, I need men to come in the community. At the time, it was major, just a major way of there for you. How many won? I said, I need 50. 50 men showed up the next day. And the next day. Mm-hmm. And the next day. And the next day. Until we flushed that, because it was a homeless person that was going around raping people. And we, until we flushed that individual out. And not only did these men stay out in the community and make a difference, they would pick up this 15-year-old victim and their family, transported, to, transported them to every court appearance that they had for a year and a half until that person was convicted. So while she was in that courtroom with her family, she could look over her shoulder and say 50 brothers, her brothers, that had her back, that would let her know we're sorry this happened to you, and we vow it will never happen again because we're taking a stance in our community. These same men, now after that, it shamed your traditional, or I should say the churches. It shamed them. Till now they started coming out. And the reason it shamed them, because I went right back and said, shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now when I call, they, listen, they, even though I, I still call my nation, but now they come out. And they absolutely make a difference on those corners. Because a lot of them used to be right where those young men are on the corners. Mm-hmm. And they can speak the language. They're not going to always listen to Lieutenant Colonel Russell, even though I can dialogue with, with them very well. But when you're talking to somebody that used to be in exact same shoes where you are, and now can tell them where they can be, stop looking at where you are today and see where you can be tomorrow, they begin to come off the corners. So it's working. So I think men are making, but I'm going to use that women. I'm going to, since you said they de-escalated. <laughs> And he's pretty smart, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm, I'm going to give me a couple of women. I'm going to see what happens. I'll get back with you on the phone. <laughs> so uh, both uh, from, from a, a local response and a, sort of like a national response, uh, what are police departments doing uh, to get police uh, who serve uh, to live in the city? Uh, you can't have officers building a community if they don't live in the community. So, so, and I, we were just talking about this earlier today, mm-hmm. Captain Casey and Doc, Dr. Phil. We were just talking about this earlier. One of the things that, that really gets me is, and I have nothing against where people come from, but this is Baltimore City, and I'm not, I'm not knocking anybody, but, you know, I just think that we don't tap into our own enough here in Baltimore City. You know, everybody in Baltimore City can't be bad. There's got to be some good candidates in Baltimore City where we can hire them same ones that's coming from the streets of Baltimore but came up the right way, you know, I'm, one, I'm probably one decision away from being on the other side of the fence. But because I made enough of the right decisions, I was able to align myself and get in a position where I could be who I am today. But if we, and I'm, I don't think I'm the only one out there. You hear what I'm saying? So I think we can tap into more of the guys and gals here. So I think that's just something that has been broken for a long time in our recruitment policy. And I think that's something that's recognized by the police commissioner. That's why Dr. Phil is here. That's why Captain Keats is here. That's why there's a team coming in because they didn't come on their own course. They got a phone call from the commissioner, right? From right. That's right. Got a phone call says something broken up here. This ain't like LA. This ain't like Oakland. This ain't like the West Coast. Something wrong over here. I got police from Puerto Rico. Ain't nothing wrong with it. All right, because we got some Hispanic populations. I can't espanol. All right, so we need some Hispanic, right? But listen, everybody shouldn't be coming from Pennsylvania. 
Everybody shouldn't be coming from New York and Boston. We got Boston police officers, and I'm talking about where they're raised from, right? And unfortunately, you've got so many police officers in this agency that don't come from an environment the way Baltimore, you said earlier, there ain't no other place like Baltimore City. And if you didn't come up in Baltimore City, especially if you're coming from a rural environment, a rural environment, where now you go through the Baltimore Police Academy, and all of a sudden, beyond TV, you see the first black person that you've ever seen in real life, Billy Cole, mm -hmm. and now you're asked how to react with them, and quite frankly, Everybody don't know how to interact. Can we just be honest? Everybody don't know how to interact with people that are raised in an environment, an inner city environment, especially when you're coming from a place where maybe there might have been one or two in your entire town. And so we got to do better at, at, at mirroring what our community looks like and putting our police officers in place and not knocking where they come from at the same time, if we're going to go outside and bring people in, that we better make sure that we're putting in the proper training and not just give them a badge and gun and now say go and police our communities that you ain't got no idea what's going on in. Mm -hmm. We gotta give them the proper training to go into our community. I even forgot the second part of that question, man. No, you got it. Okay, you I got, got it. it. Yeah? I mean, the only thing I would, I would wanna add to that, because uh, it's, it's a difficult question for a lot of places to answer and you wouldn't think it would be. Um, but it, it's not just in Baltimore where the folks are having a hard time getting homegrown talent to join uh, the PD. And even get, when the homegrown talent comes on, having them to live yeah. in the city where they're working. Right? <clears throat> uh, people f somehow, maybe the way that they're doing their job, they feel like, I don't want to live next to the people I'm policing because I know that they see what I'm doing. That, maybe that's an indication of something. Um, but really what, what frequently ends up happening, if you've got strained uh, relationships with the community, the community is not interested in joining an occupying force. Okay? And so where, where does it work? It works when you have that united leadership front that says, we will not be an occupying force. Right? And you do have a commissioner that has said, I don't want to be in charge of an occupying force. So it's important for us to get homegrown talent, Right, a representative uh, group of folks. Um, so uh, the, the department needs to reflect the diversity of the community. And the folks that come on need to be excellent officers that are able to provide equitable service. And again, we've got a leadership team that's committed to doing that. Most police departments get to set their own standards. There's some exceptions to that, but most police departments get to set their own standards. And so you can accept people from the community, provided that the community will accept your people. All right, so I think this will be our last question. Uh, please address the please address the department regarding outcomes for oh please address the I guess this is disparities regarding outcomes for the same offense, i.e., an open container of alcohol at Camden Yards or M&T Bank Stadium civil citation at North Avenue in Fulton, arrest. Uh, that question's actually already been answered. And um, what how'd you say? Too big what? Hmm? Too big to fail, too rich to jail. I mean, that's, that's the answer. That's the answer. You know, that's an investment for the city. We're being transparent, right? Camden Yard is an investment for the city. It's raking in hundreds of millions of dollars. Come on, somebody. And, and so it's pouring money back into the city. And start locking up people down Camden Yard for drinking. 
with mm -hmm. open containers. Start doing that. That's why you can't go into a stadium in this country where they don't sell alcohol, beer. Take that away because it's a great revenue. You start locking up people down Camden Yard for open containers, ain't nobody coming back. To see the Orioles play as good as they are, see the Ravens play, at least the, 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 the not the clientele, but the attendance will drop down. Mm -hmm. But now you're talking about, what, what do you say, North and what? North, North, North and Folk. Lord have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> you had to pick North and Folk. That is no, listen, you can go all the way back to the riots. When we burnt down our own stuff. We burnt down our own stuff and it still ain't back. You can take a snapshot from back in 1968 and look at it. Take a picture up North Avenue on the west side, pretty much. Matter of fact, you can go from Hilton to Milton. Take some pictures. It don't look too much different. Mm -hmm. Ain't nobody investing in it yet. Don't nobody seem to care about it that much yet. So what does it matter if I have the authority to write a citation or the power to make or, or to make the arrest? The city's not going to lose no revenue. As a matter of fact, the city's probably going to make some revenue, even though the officer's not thinking like this all the time, right? Thank God they don't pay us for every arrest, because then we'd be real trouble, right? Goodness, yeah. But listen, so now they're up on North and Fulton making arrests because ain't nobody pressuring them saying not to make arrests. That's just North and Fulton. I can remember, and that, listen, that demeanor has been like that forever since I've been a police. I can remember back in the mid-80s, had the audacity to be doing patrol down a little bit. Car clearly blocking, you couldn't even see the fire hydrant. Wrote a ticket because he was blocking the fire hydrant. It wasn't an hour later that I was in the major's office <laughs> saying, boy, give me the ticket. Rip it up and don't you ever, ever, ever matter of fact, don't even go back down a little bit anymore. Because the rich, what is it again? Too well, big to too fail. Too heard rich to it. jail. Yeah. And the, the bottom line is we're being transparent. That it is. That's it. Mm. That is it. Some neighborhoods you can do some things, unfortunately, and some neighbors you're never going to do some things. Mm. Just not. Y'all, y'all, I told you coming in here, we got to be honest and we got to be transparent. I ain't said you had to like the answers. All, All right. right. So let me add on to that then. One little anecdote. I like telling telling stories. My dad's a storyteller. So um, doing what we do, we have the occasion to go into um, politicians' offices and, and lobbyists and such. I'm not going to name this politician. I'm not even going to tell you where they're from. Um, <clears throat> but there's a map of this politician's area. Okay. Um, and the map, there's different colors. And I assume there's just different like you see police maps and different colors for different districts. Um, but some of the colors repeat, and I was a little bit confused because the map didn't make sense to me. So I asked the person um, who was the receptionist, um, and the receptionist said, well, uh, it's percentages. I said, percentages of what? He said, well, you can ask the elected official. So I asked the elected official, and I do occasionally have a way of making people feel way more comfortable than they should. So he told me the truth, and he said, well, we got it shaded that way. Because that's the percentage that we think are likely to vote in that area. I said, okay, well, that's useful for a politician to know. Um, <clears throat> my question is, why do you have dollar signs next to things up next to that? I said, this is the amount of folks we can incarcerate, property damage we can allow, complaints we can let pile up before it starts hurting our reelection chances. 
Okay. So if you want to know how to fight dollars, sometimes I, can I say make it more plain? Vote. That's right. Okay. If you in charge of the vote, if you in charge of their jobs, that's, right. that's their money. That's right. Ain't nothing more money than their money. That's right. Okay. That's right. So if you want to change that, vote. And not just you, but make sure that your car is available, that your neighbor's car is available, that you do a caravans back and forth. Right? If you can do that, you change where open containers are and are not allowed. Amen. Tell the truth. Hey, so for the audience, how many folks are here uh, attending a OSI race conversation for the first time? Whoa. Oh. Whoa. Where y'all been? <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, look, on, on behalf of OSI, you know, first of all, you know, forget the New York guy. You know, what New Year's New York? Philly. I'm from Philly. Philly. Same difference. Right? Oh! Oh! Hold up now. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me. Lord Jesus, please help this man. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. Do what you need to do. First, we want to thank our very own homegrown Lieutenant Governor, <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Melvin Russell. Come on, y'all. Give me a hand. And then, if we must, let's give it up for Philly's own Dr. <laughs> Phil, Phil Gong. <laughs> and stay tuned for additional OSI, you know, convenings, including the 15-year anniversary. All right. Have a good evening, everybody. <laughs>